continuing our series of studies through the Psalms, and this morning we're going to be looking at how we face apathy in our Christian walk, and we'll be guided by the words of David here in Psalm 63. Please give your attention to God's word. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. A very, very long time ago, the philosopher Aristotle taught that there are three basic elements to effective communication. Logos, ethos, and pathos. Those are the three terms in Greek that he used for it, and they're all actually relatively familiar terms to us, even in English. The word logos, of course, in the church, we know it well. It's the word that means the word. That's what it means, the message. In other words, when Aristotle was speaking of the logos, he was thinking of a, a powerful, the content of a powerful message, a well-written, a well-formed, well-reasoned message. And he said that's the basis for effective communication. But it's not enough. He added to that ethos. The ethos is the ethics, the, the life of the speaker, the lifestyle of the speaker, his perceived authority, his perceived expertise, his perceived uh, genuineness, authenticity, and a life that fits with the message that he's communicating. But again, having the message and having a life that fits the message and power and authority behind the message, he says not even that is enough. You need a third element, which he calls pathos. It's what we would call passion. There needs to be what, he would call, what we would call the emotional appeal to the message, where you appeal to the heart of the listener a passion that is driven by conviction, authentic conviction on the part of the speaker that exhorts the listener and hits them in the gut, hits them in the emotions so that they are motivated to not only hear but act upon what they have heard. We often refer to these in the Christian world because there is a parallel to effective communication on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the logos we have, you don't get any better message than the message of the Word of God, and particularly the gospel message. We have the message, 
There's no inadequacy there at all. There may be some inadequacy in our ethics, in our life, because our life will never fully measure up to the message that we teach. But that is our goal, is that we live consistently with the Word of God so that we don't contradict with our life the message that we share with the world, the truth of God's Word. But that third element is just as important in our communication as Christians and on behalf of the church, is there should be a passion behind what we're communicating. There should be a, a deep love that is driving our message. Love for God, love for the world, love for the listener. A passion about what we have experienced ourselves and long to see other people experience along with us. And I think that's what's often lacking in our message. The Psalms are full of passion. When you read them, as you read through them, sometimes you feel like you've stumbled across somebody's old box of, of love letters. They're so passionate, so intimate. The language is sometimes even makes us uncomfortable. It's so intimate. As the psalmist speaks of his love for God. When they asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Do you remember what he said? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. That's the most important thing. Not that we obey. He could have said that, that we obey the commandments of God, but he didn't. That we love the Lord our God. And that entails, that incorporates the idea of obeying God, but it's obedience that is driven by the passion of love for God. And that's what makes our message powerful. James Montgomery Boyce, in commenting on Psalm 63, talks about three kinds of Christians. There are Christians that are only Christians in name only. They just wear the name, but it really doesn't affect their life. And then he says there's a second category of Christians that follow Christ, but follow him at a distance. And then the third category are those that walk with Christ in communion with him on a daily basis. Now, that's a vast simplification, and we're all somewhere and the spectrum in between. But the important thing is scripture drives us and shows us what it means to be in communion with Christ, walking with God every day of your life. In Psalm 63, David, it says in the title, and the titles, of course, were added later. They're not part of the inspired text, but they're often, I'd say even usually, uh, helpful in understanding who wrote the psalm and, and what circumstances. And this one actually gives us an interesting insight. It says that David wrote this psalm when he was in the wilderness of Judah. A dry and weary land. He's in the wilderness. When would this, as we know David's life, when, what would this have described? What part of his life? What period of time? Well, it could be two. One would be before he became king, when King Saul was on the throne. David had been anointed to be the true king of Israel, but King Saul was on the throne and he drove David from his presence, chased him into the wilderness and pursued him to kill him. David might have written this psalm at that point, literally in the wilderness. The other time would be after he, at the height of his reign when his son Absalom drove him from the throne, raised a rebellion against him, drove him from the throne and David escaped into the wilderness on the run from his son Absalom. Those two periods, 
We don't know which one, doesn't really matter. What we need to know, what's important is what the title tells us, he was in the wilderness. He was apart from his comfortable life. He was apart from the tabernacle. He was apart from the worship of the people of God. He was apart from his family. He was in a dry and weary land with no water. David's physical suffering had many purposes. And as we look at scripture, we can see a lot of the purposes that came out of David's suffering. But one thing we see here, and that's the beautiful thing about the Psalms, is we get a peek into the souls of the saints as they suffered. And as David is going through this wilderness period in his life, we see what it means to be a person of passion. What it looks like and how to sustain it, how to gain it and how to sustain it. And just a reminder there that you're probably suffering today. I'm sure you can think of your life that there's some area of your life where you're suffering. Maybe many areas of your life where you're suffering. Some people are suffering a lot right now. That that's always one of God's purposes. He always has a multitude of purposes in what he does in this world. But that's always one of his purposes is to give you a gut check, to give you a heart check, for you to look and say, where am I at with God? Am I following him from a distance? Am I following him in name only? Or am I walking closely with him? And always when we suffer, the purpose is to draw us into a closer fellowship with him, just as we see here with David. How do we renew our passion for God? David was called a man after God's own heart, which is amazing because David was a man who committed great sins, more scandalous sins than you and I have committed. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. So committing great sin doesn't disqualify you from being someone who passionately loves God. We are all sinners. We all need grace. So what does passion for God look like as David describes it here? Well, the first characteristic of passion for God that he describes is in verse 1. It's that pursuing, that, that passionate pursuing of God, seeking God. He says in verse 1, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. That's very strong language. A spiritual longing that is so intense that it even has physical manifestations to it. <clears throat> we are both body and soul. That's something that's kind of unique about the true religion, Christianity, is that we believe that we are not just souls, we're not just bodies, we are both body and soul. Both parts of us are integral to who we are. And when our soul is struggling, when our soul is weak, when our soul is empty, it has physical manifestations to it often. We can become heart sick. Separation from God, being far from God, creates discontentment in life, it creates restlessness, it creates dissatisfaction, and there are implications to that. But David has a certain hope. Because he knows his God is faithful, he says in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with rich fat and rich food. It's not right now. He's in the wilderness He's empty, he's struggling, he's searching, seeking, thirsting. But he will be satisfied with fat and rich food. Being in the presence of God, being close to God, is like being seated at a great banquet table with rich and fine foods. 
excuse me. Jesus often pictured life in his kingdom as being like a great banquet. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. He promises to feed us spiritually as we approach him. And that's really what's behind the Lord's Supper. We use language, and maybe if you're not familiar with it, it makes you a little uncomfortable, like the words of the Psalms will make you uncomfortable. We say that when you come to the Lord's table, you come to feed upon Christ. But we're just using the language that Jesus himself used. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Come and feed upon Christ. That as we observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he feeds us not in a crass physical way, but in a spiritual way. He feeds our faith. This is a means of grace to you that you may grow in your faith. And what it means to grow in faith is to draw near to him. We are born hungry for God. Every human being who is born into this world is made in the image of God. That means that there's an inherent need programmed into us. There is a need for God himself to be filled with God, to be filled with our creator. But because we are also born sinners, we are born hostile to that filling. Unwilling to come to God to be filled. We run away from him instead. We run into the darkness to pursue sin and selfishness. But that need remains. And what we do in our sinfulness is we try to fill it with both the pleasures of sin and the pleasures of this temporary world. That's why people become drug addicts, alcoholics, addicted to pornography. They're trying to fill an emptiness that God is intended to fill, but they're unwilling to go to him for it. We even fill our lives with good things, and we Christians are guilty of this, filling our lives with good things, but making idols of them instead by putting them in the place of our heart that God is meant to occupy. And so we will fill that need we have for God, we'll fill it with friendships or marriages or children or careers or entertainment or sports. But these things were never intended to take God's place. What we need is to be filled with him we need that intimacy with him. If you remember that the, the first uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie had the Aztec curse in it. Remember the Aztec curse that the, that the pirates were under? I've always thought there's powerful spiritual imagery in that. That the light, when the light would come upon them, it would display them to be the walking dead. They would be walking corpses. They were actually dead men walking as the light exposed them. And remember how they would eat, but they couldn't be satisfied. They'd hold up the fruit and lust after the fruit, but when they'd eat it, it could not satisfy their hunger. I thought, what a picture of the state of unregenerate man. What we were as we were born into this world, craving but unable to be satisfied. As believers, we will allow our passion to be squelched. We are given new hearts. We are alive in Christ. We are not walking dead. We have been made new creatures in Christ. We are alive. We are given new hearts that desire God, that want to be close to God. 
But often we will squelch that desire for God by filling our lives with either the pleasures of sin or the pleasures of this temporary world. The second characteristic that David gives here is that when we have a passion for God, it drives us to cling to God. And I want to focus on that word cling for a second. He uses it in verse 8. He says, my soul clings to you. That is the same word that you will find in the Hebrew text in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The word cleave is what's translated here in Psalm 63, cling. A man will cling to his wife. The Bible uses that imagery of bridegroom and bride all the time from beginning to end to portray the relationship between God and his people and specifically between God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the church. He is the bridegroom, we are the bride. And the reason that he uses that imagery is because we don't know any other human relationship that even begins to approximate the intimacy that we desire with our creator. And marriage is the relationship we know. A good marriage is the closest you're going to come to it. Of that desire to be intimate with our God and our creator. To know him completely. To see him and know him completely. That is the desire of this new heart that he's given us. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Or the heart, I should say, that gave us our faith in Jesus Christ. I knew a couple once that uh, had to feel bad later for the way I, I looked at them initially. I was working, when I was working for radio, it was the girl who had the shift, afternoon shift after me. We got to be good friends. And there was a policeman in the town where we were who got to know her, became totally enamored with her, and worshiped the ground she walked on, so to speak. And he just pursued her relentlessly, and she had no interest in him. And those of us who worked at her at the station, we just, I mean, I know a couple times, I said, dude, she doesn't want to be with you. Let her go. Go find somebody who wants to be with you. But he was relentless. He just, he'd send flowers to the station. He'd show up when she was getting off work. I mean, he was a policeman and it was practically stalking. And then I, I left that job, went back to school, finished my seminary degree and got into ministry. And a few years later, I heard that she married him. How did that happen? I don't know, except for his incredible dogged persistence. And that's the kind of love that's being described here, this kind of clinging to God. We tend to look down upon clinging love, but this is the kind of clinging, this dependent love that we're meant to have. We're not meant to depend on another person. We're not meant to worship another person. We're not meant to be codependent. We're meant to cling to God, to cleave to God. To be close to him. That's the relationship that this new heart desires. Paul describes it. This is one of my favorite portions of scripture because Paul describes this clinging to God, this passion for God in in words, again, that make us uncomfortable if you listen carefully to what he's saying. I'm going to pick up the reading in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wanted to know Christ. And in our circles, Presbyterian circles, reform circles, we tend to translate that as an academic knowledge. We want to know a lot about Christ, and certainly that's part of knowing Christ. You can't know Christ if you don't know about him, but that's not enough. You need to experience Christ. You need to lean on Christ. You need to walk with Christ daily. It's that kind of passionate relationship with Christ that David's describing. But I want to make sure that you're clear on the fact that it's not our pursuing of Christ that establishes the relationship with Christ. It's his pursuing of us. And David indicates this when he says, he talks about my soul clings to you, but the next thing he says is, your right hand upholds me. It's kind of like that toddler. If you pick up a toddler, they might cling to your, your shirt collar or your, your arm. They'll cling to you. They feel, may feel a little insecure, but then they start to rest when they realize your arms are underneath them. You're holding them. You're not going to let them fall. And that's the kind of relationship we have with God, is we want to draw close to him, and we realize the whole time that it's his arms that are holding us, and he has promised that he will never let us go. Nothing, no one can take us out of his hands. God is the first pursuer, and we pursue because he first pursued us. Why? Why do we want to be close to God? Well, verse 3 gives the answer. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. That steadfast love, you're going to hear it many times in the Psalms. You hear it all through the Old Testament. It's the covenant love of God. That unconditional, unmerited, God-initiated kind of love that is totally focused on your needs. That steadfast love that is based upon the covenant promises that God has made to his people. That love is more important to David than anything else in this world. He says it is better than life itself. Life, as David is referring to it there, is access to all the good things in this world. He says, you can have it all. I want the love of God. The steadfast love of God. Remember what, how Satan accused Job before God? He accused Job of only serving God because of the good things that God had given to Job. Job was a rich man. He had many children, many possessions, much power, much influence. He had everything this world could want to offer. And Job said, you know what? That's why Job serves you. It's because you've been so good to him in this world. You take all that away, he'll stop serving you in a minute. Or to put it in his own words, this is what he says. 
Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But God proved Satan wrong. God said to Satan, go ahead, take it all away. Take every last bit of away, even his health. Leave him with nothing except life itself. And see how he responds. And you remember how Job responds? I love these words. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Everything had been taken from Job. He had nothing good in this life. And Job says, even if you take my life, the one thing that God prohibited Satan from taking, even if you take my life, I will still trust you. I will still love you. I will still desire you in the depth of my soul. That's the kind of passion that David's talking about. Paul, the apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is dying gain for Paul? Because he gets more of the good stuff he has in this life? No, because he gets more of Christ. Dying is more of Christ. Truly seeing God's glory in Jesus Christ shows how unsatisfying ultimately everything else is in this life. As the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, that's what this new heart wants, is a clearer vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what this heart wants. Show me more of yourself, Lord. I want to know you, Paul says. Passion for God means pursuing him, thirsting for him, clinging to him because you treasure Christ more than anything else in your life. And maybe that's the challenging issue. How do we get our passion satisfied, according to David? He lists two ways here, the two main ways, and there's nothing new and profound here. How do you get this, how do you allow this passion to express itself and find true, deep, lasting, eternal satisfaction in life. The first way is by seeing God's glory in public worship. Look at verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He's remembering what it was like to be in the tabernacle where the glory of God was revealed in the very word of God that had been given through the prophets and through the, the priestly activities, the sacrifices, all this pointing in a shadowy way towards the final work of Christ. It was there among God's people worshiping in God's house that David saw the glory of God and was satisfied. You remember, David's out in the wilderness. I don't know how long he'd been away from the public worship of God's people, but he'd been away long time and he missed the church. I love that when I hear people go on vacation or they're sick and they come back to church the first time and say, oh, I've missed the church. We take it for granted. I wanna ask you how important is the public worship of the church to your life? Sometimes when I look around the evangelical church in this day and age, I wonder how important is the gathered Worship of God's people. No wonder our lives are apathetic if we're allowing the most meaningless, trivial of activities to draw us away from worship. 
No wonder our passion runs low. You know, think about it. David didn't live in a time where men of God were going around performing great miracles. That only happened in rare periods of biblical history and really world history. There were three basic times where you had men assigned by God to bring the word of God to people and therefore authenticate their role as a spokesman for God by having them perform miracles. That was in Moses' day when he led the Exodus and you saw great and mighty wonders done by God through Moses. In the days of the prophets with Elijah and Elisha when they did mighty works in the name of God. And then in the days of Jesus and the apostles when they did miracles as God's spokesmen. God still does miracles. God's always done miracles. But only in those periods did he use men particularly to go do miracles. David didn't live in one of those periods where miracles were kind of commonplace. David didn't see visions. He didn't have angelic visitations. It's comforting to know that David saw the glory of God the same way you and I see the glory of God, by faith. He heard the word of God. He gathered with God's people. And just think about how much more we know about the glory of God because we live after the cross. We have seen the glory of God revealed in the death of his son as Jesus Christ died as the Passover lamb bearing the the punishment that our sins deserved on the cross, bearing the pains of hell in our place, dying where we deserve to die and then being raised from the dead and being ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he reigns over all things. We know this. We see this. The word of God has revealed all this. We know so much more than David did. We should be so much more satisfied in the glories of the gospel. But notice that it's not only in the public worship that David had his passion for God satisfied. It also is in his private worship or his alone times with the Lord. Look at verses five and six. Let me read those for you again. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Night was different for people back in David's day. We tend to think of night as the time we're sleeping. But in David's day, and really up until very recently, night was when started with sundown and stopped with sunrise. Because when the sun was up, that's when you worked. And when it was dark, you couldn't work out in the fields, particularly in agricultural culture. And so the dark, the nighttime, was the time when you didn't have to work, you were freed up to do other things. We don't have free time in our dark hours. After, you know, I say until recent time, 1950 is really when it changed. You know what, you know what changed in 1950? Thereabout. They, they invented television. And all of a sudden, our non-working hours got filled up in a hurry. And then... A couple decades later, they invented the internet. And the internet takes up more time than the television many times. And we don't have time. There's no space, we have no margins, we have no space in our life to pursue God. The psalmist David says, in the night hours, in the quiet times, that's where I met with God. 
and my deepest needs were satisfied. Psalm 119, verse 148 says, My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. I hear it from brothers and sisters in the Lord all the time. I hear it in my own, coming out of my own mouth. I wish I had more time to spend with the Lord. I just don't have time to spend in the word and spend in prayer. It's just not true. It's an issue of priorities. It's an issue of what else in your life are you using to scratch that itch, that need you have for intimacy with God. Think about the places in scripture where people had encounters with God. Individuals had encounters with God. Just think of a few examples in your mind where individuals had encounters with God. Did those encounters take place in the busy places of life, in the marketplace, at the workplace? I can't think of a single one. They happened in the quiet places, the alone places, in the wilderness, in the sanctuary, in the bedroom. Hagar met with God, had an encounter with God in the wilderness. Jacob had an encounter with God when he was sleeping by the river by himself. Moses had an encounter with God at the burning bush in the wilderness by himself. Elijah had his encounter with God in the wilderness, in the mountainside. Paul spent three years in the wilderness of Arabia, preparing for ministry, being with God. John received the revelation that we call the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos by himself. And if you need any further evidence, it says in the Gospels that Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, often withdrew to the wilderness to draw near to God. As sinners living by grace, we need to get apart. We need space. We need margins. We need time to be alone with God. We need that time to refocus, to reboot, to recharge. Sometimes I have to shut my computer down because there's too much stuff cluttering its active memory. So I have to shut it down and clear the, the disks so that it will work efficiently so that it does what it's supposed to do. And I need that daily to refocus and reboot and draw near to God. Let me ask you about your summer vacation plans. What do you plan to do with your vacation time this year? Will those vacation times be with the Lord or away from the Lord? So often what we do on our vacations, we get so stressed out and so busy and so stressed out at work, we need a vacation. So we go on a vacation. What do we do? We go to Disney's World. And we're entertained from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed. And then we come back to work and we're spiritually much weaker than when we left for our quote-unquote vacation. I'm challenging you to find those spaces in your life to draw near to the Lord. You need them. That's where he will satisfy that deepest passion of your newborn soul. And what's the result when we do that? David shows us. Your heart overflows with praise and witness. That's what happens. Look at verses three and four. David sees God's glory and power in the sanctuary, and he says in verses three and four, my lips will praise you 
So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. And then in verse 5, after he talks about his meeting with the Lord in the quiet times of the night, it says, after that, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When you treasure the Lord above everything else, even life itself, and you live for the pleasure of drawing near to him and being satisfied in him, praise to God and witness to others will naturally flow from your heart. Your heart will overflow with the joy of being close to God so that you will praise him and you will witness for him. Those of you that have known me for a long time, some of you have known me for years, I'll ask you guys a question. What do I love? What does Dan Keel love? What are some things that come to mind that Dan Keel loves? Music, I love music. Baseball, particularly the Pirates and the Phillies. Thank you. See, these people know me well. Dunkin' Donuts coffee, yes. The, the only coffee that should be drunk on the face of the planet. Longwood Gardens, Cook Forest, Pennsylvania in general. Yes, yes, good storylines and a good movie. Jesus, thank you. I'm glad that one showed up. That, they didn't get that one in the first service. <laughs> but my point, is, my point is obvious. Why do you know this about me? Because I talk about these things all the time. I talk about them passionately. I love these things. And I wish I'd talk about Jesus more because I need to love him a whole lot more than any of these other things. But see, that's what happens. You talk about the things you treasure. We should be talking about Jesus as much. We should be praising him and witnessing for him as much if we are truly satisfied in him. I'm gonna close with the lyrics to another song, not, to, not a psalm this time, but a popular song, a, actually not that well known, but it's a Christian song that came out a couple decades ago by a man named Jeff Moore. And I just always, I've thought of these lyrics often since I first heard them. And I just wanna close because it really becomes a prayer for all of us. It's the song's called Passionate Man, and it begins by saying, in the mirror I see a man I swore I would never be. I remember the promise that I would never turn. Won't you take and rekindle the flame, the flame that used to burn, and I'll love you like the air I breathe, and you'll fill my empty heart, and I'll wear my faith out on my sleeve like a fire in the dark. I am willing to do anything, eager to make a stand. I was a passionate boy. Make me a passionate man. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the people around us would more and more see us as people who are passionate for Jesus Christ, who love him, who love his church, who love the gospel. Lord, we need our hearts to be changed. We've been filling our lives, we've been filling our hearts with things that only temporarily take away the need and leave us empty. Father, we're thankful for all the good things of this world that we possess, that we enjoy, but Lord, keep us from putting those things in that place where only you belong. Lord, teach us to love you well, to draw near to you, to seek after you, to thirst for you, to seek you in public worship and in private worship. 
Help us to be disciplined to make the time to, to seek you by prayer and the word on a regular basis, on a daily basis, that our passions might be fulfilled and that we might be truly satisfied. We pray in Christ's name, amen.